Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this week on Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Koch, we have the mighty Webb Wilder, singing, guitar slinging, acting, and a heck of a nice fella, Hattiesburg, Mississippi's own, this week on Chewing the Gristle. Kapow! Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's that time again to chew the doggone gristle. Gregory Koch here with my buddy Webb Wilder, who's down in Nashville, Tennessee. Webb, you are an individual that is not afraid to engage in spirited rock craft with the intensity of a thousand suns, and I want to applaud you for your vigorous and steadfast commitment to this art form. What do you think about that? I appreciate your salutary compliments, and I assure you, it's never been said quite as eloquently. <laughs> well, how are you? How are you, my friend? How have you been weathering the great pestilence well, of the I'm, last year or so? Uh, thanks for asking. You know, I uh, have been weathering it, but not without some uh, ardor. You know, um, I've had two birthdays since this nonsense started, and I ain't getting any younger, so I'd sort of like to be freed from the confines and shackles of the pandemic. But, but nonetheless, I've been doing a lot of stuff, you know, as have you. No one can keep up with you, but I've, um, I've done streaming shows, you know. I released an album at the beginning of the darn thing, which was frustrating, uh, you know, timing-wise. Uh, April 10th, my latest oh, album, yes. Night Without Love came out, and so the big show, uh, record release show that was supposed to be at the high-profile Grammys Nashville, I mean, Grimey's Nashville uh, record store was in my basement, you know, instead. <laughs> yes. Well, that is that is unfortunate. I, I enjoyed the Grimey's uh, illusion. That's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing I'm doing is um, I'm doing... Uh, now, I've been doing a weekly chart show on WMOT, uh, Roots Radio, which is an Americana thing, for a few years now. But now I'm doing almost daily shows. I'm doing uh, the chart show and the Monday through Thursday afternoons, 1 to 4. So uh, the chart show airs twice, so I'm on the air six days a week on the radio. Nice. Yeah. And, and how have you been enjoying that? I enjoy it. And I'm working with my old boss. You know, one of the few distinctions I hold is that I was one of the first satellite DJs back in the dawn of satellite radio. Uh, Jesse Scott then hired me to helm the Nashville part of her Americana XM channel before the merger of XM and Sirius. And so she came back into my life 10 years after, you know, the, the XM people showed me the door. They showed a lot of people the door. It was a big layoff. And I uh, said, hey, how would you like to do this chart show? We're, we're Strangely enough, Nashville had not had a reporting Americana channel prior to this. And uh, so it's just been advancing since then. It's kind of a groovy thing. Now, for those who aren't as familiar with uh, these uh, terms as perhaps they should or could be, describe what you would define Americana as in terms of musical activity. 
Well, what I like to think of it as is a place where eclecticism is welcomed and encouraged. And some people might define it this way or that. I, I scratched my head a little bit back in the 90s when people started um, labeling me that, you know, and I thought, well, I thought I was rock and roll. But as you'll notice, when they do the televised portion of the Grammy uh, program now, rock is not even included in the televised part. It's been relegated to the polka portion of the awards in the afternoon. So anyway, I think Americana now has grown and broadened to the point where it is a lot like what album-oriented rock radio was back in that classic 68 to 73 time period. Because think about it, Van Morrison never made rock music, but he was in the rock category. He made folk, jazz, R&B-inspired original music right alongside Led Zeppelin. Right. And even and even Led Zeppelin was eclectic and had their, you know, acoustic stuff. So I see a lot of that now in Americana radio and in Americana music where people are rocking hard. They're doing bluegrass informed stuff. They're doing R&B informed stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing. Excellent. That is an interesting point. I mean, certainly uh, the music of the classic rock era, as you just mentioned in, in those parameters of uh, those years, you're exactly correct. I mean, uh, I think that artists had a little bit more, well, a hell of a lot more, um, more say in adding all these different elements in and really kind of be on the quest for finding some kind of, uh, you know, on an artistic path that involved all these different ingredients. And But I, I think one of the things, just for my own personal opinion, see what you think about it, I think that also just the, uh, the kind of abandon that was that was uh, evident back then, not only in live performance, but what was allowed in the studio. Yeah, seemed to be uh, also welcomed. Where it seems everything now is like, oh, don't don't do that. No, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know what I mean. <laughs> there seems to be a level of control that um, I personally don't like to be. I'm a wild animal, really. If we're if we're if we're honest, Webb, I embrace it. Uh, but it, th there seems to be a. Um, you know, that's my only complaint about Roots. Or I mean, I love Roots music, and, and I really love people who are dedicated to the craft. But I also find that sometimes, just from my own personal uh, damaged outlook, that there, there just seems to be a squelch button on the abandoned yeah. part. Would you not agree with that in some way, shape, or form? I think that's always uh, been around. But, you know, I took my cue, really— from the Beatles. Early on, the Beatles' idea of making a good album, um, by the time I started making records, people wanted you to do one thing so they could market that. But I couldn't change because my modus operandi has always been like the Beatles. You know, you have your slow song, you got your funny song, you got your fast song, you got your rock song, you got your song, shows this influence. And most of my records are that way. And right. um, that's probably why I... Uh, had to sell my good guitars. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, you're not afraid to rock, and that's what I love. And and that's another thing I like to talk about is just the aspect of of what is rock and roll. Because to me, I mean, you know, again, you know, not to be you know Captain Dysfunction Charlie Brown here, but you know, it's it's like at some point, you know, at not all that long ago. Country music decided to say, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna co-op rock and roll, and just yeah. we're gonna call it country, and then we're not gonna make it a rebellious music. It's going to be the 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 mouth horse or the 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 uh, the sounding board for establishment talking points." <laughs> no, I agree. Well, Tom Petty had a great quote, and I can't remember exactly, but you know, he he was. Uh, uh, 
a saying or evaluating the the state of country radio, you know, 15 years ago or something and said it sounds like bad rock with fiddles or something, you know. Right. <laughs> so my deal, I've never been afraid to rock and I've never been afraid to do ballads and country and all of it. And um, but yeah, that that thing when country radio appropriated rock and roll and took all the integrity out of it, uh, most unfortunate. Most unfortunate. And, uh, and, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be what Terry Adams called the border patrol, you know, where you go, uh, uh-uh, can't do that. Right. But, but you just want things to, um, to be good. You know, you want them to be integrity or art based or whatever. And, you know, there's a lot of what I call make a buck music. Right. Absolutely. So describe to me, you know, the, the kind of things that you see from, um, you know, maybe people that aren't as well known, uh, that you consider to be really cool uh, uh, examples of what we've been talking about that they could check out and, and enjoy that are still creating new stuff? Well, I just happen to have recorded my weekly chart show, so I'm looking at my notes from some of that, you know. And, for instance, we, uh, the missus and I went to see Jim Lauderdale's record release club date here last week. And, you know, Jim was blessed with an authentic country voice, but he's never been afraid to just, you know, write songs with Robert Hunter from the Grateful Dead or whatever. And his new album, Hope, is very interesting and musically diverse, you know, and uh, it's, uh, he did the whole album as an album live at the show we went to. And I'd like to drive down the highway listening to it as an album. That's another thing, people that make albums to be listened to as albums, you know, how important sequencing is. So I would recommend that as, as uh, not an album full of probably hit singles, but a real kind of concept, positive, groovy uh, place where lots of influences blend. And, uh, you know, um, the new, um, the new, um, Blackberry Smoke album is interesting, you know. It is, isn't it? I, yeah. I enjoyed that, yeah. And Charlie, you know, th- like you, I watch a lot of his guitar stuff, you know, on Instagram and all. And uh, he's got some cool stuff going, and he's got some cool influences. And he he looks like he sounds, and he sounds like he looks. And he's he's he writes, he plays guitar, he sings. Uh, they're they're impressive. There's so much going on, you know. Um, just glancing through this. Uh, Dylan LeBlanc has done a um, a cover EP, and he 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 covers "Expecting to Fly" by the Buffalo Springfield, which is an old ah uh, yes, you know um, uh, Neil Young song. So yeah, there's there's quite a lot, and of course Lake Street Dive, Lake Street Dive probably rattled a few cages in Americana because their new album is a little bit more urban-ish maybe, but, you know, they've always got really imaginative arrangements and their own brand of songwriting. And Rachel Price is such an incredible and sensuous lead singer. And then you you realize that they're on the Americana chart, but it's probably not even their focus. They're, they're making records to be marketed however the powers that be market them. And that was another thing that was kind of happening back in the day. Although there seemed to be a lot of segregation between the rock community and the country community in radio until people like, well, there's no one like Amy Lou Harris, but think about what she accomplished. She came from the countryside of the rock world with traditional kind of music and didn't compromise it at all. And miraculously somehow in the seventies, country mainstream radio accepted her and gave her hits right 
But anyway, that's I digress. That's a whole different thing. Jackson Brown's got a new album, you know. Um, the Black Keys have that really dense um, hill country drone kind of bluesy thing going on their new album. Um, I heard the new um, R.B. Morris album a while back, which is not on the charts, but, you know, he's like the poet laureate of Knoxville, and he's he's on an astral plane, and <laughs> I can't remember the name of the album, but it's really cool. So, and Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, yeah, yeah. you know, blows me away, and he can just, he's one of those guys that can just pick up the guitar and make it his woman, you know, and uh, I love that about him, and he and I are actually on the same album, Shamika Copeland's last album. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, I had the rare... Uh, believe me, no one calls me as a session guitar player, but I had co-written a song for the album with her manager and they brought me in Will Kimbrough producing. He's a great guitar player too. And so Will and I tracked it and then they put Dwayne Eddy on the track with us. And that was amazing. And that nice. album is really good. I mean, that, on different tracks, you have Jason Isbell and Chris Stone and Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and, and, uh, you know, Dwayne Eddy and forget about it, you know? It's yeah, amazing. yeah. It's the Super Friends. Yes. And and Will did a great job with the Sonics, too. And, of course, all the lyrics are super, unbelievably timely because it's it one of those albums that they recorded it before all the, you know, brown matter hit the fan and then right. they, they applied. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your, your growing up. And you're from Mississippi. Are you from Hattiesburg? Yes, sir. Way down there. And so tell me musically what, what first got you started and what initially inspired you and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's a good question and appreciate that uh, you asking. You know, my parents were not musical, but but they had no opportunity to be much. You know, they had the Depression and World War II and poverty and all sorts of things to deal with. So when I come along, suburban, post-war, mid-century, modern, spoiled, only child, I had a lot of leisure time and access to, you know, radio and TV and everything. So I think the media really was my earliest influences. I have a really foggy, I was born in 54. I have a really foggy, distant memory of having heard Maybe Baby by Buddy Holly on the radio. Uh -huh. But I was just always inclined towards uh, being a dreamer and, uh, you know, fantasies of show business and wanting to sing. And then... Um, by the third grade, I guess, I had gotten, I had been to see Elvis Presley. It happened at the World's Fair at the theater and had ordered the soundtrack album and Rick Nelson's Million Sellers from Sears. <laughs> so when the Beatles hit in the fourth grade for me, all the squares liked them and all the hip people liked them. I, well, I don't know if I could ascertain who was hip yet in the fourth grade, but I knew who wasn't. <laughs> Right, I do, and they all liked the Beatles, and I was like, mm, "Man, I don't know. These people have never liked anything cool before." But you know, ten seconds later, I got it, and uh, and obviously, their gold standard was the bar, you know, for me from right. then on. Right. But so I was always drawn to all that. Um, I was lucky to get a Hank Williams record at an early age because, you know, I loved music and I wanted to get my father a present, and I asked him what he liked, and he was literally cleaning his gun and said, "Hank Williams." You know? <laughs> So one thing led to another, and um, so I had these two friends who were a year older who were best friends with one another that lived in the neighborhood, and they had gotten guitars. And um, and I don't know if I had 
strangely enough, I don't know if I had asked my mother for one yet. Once I started asking for guitar stuff, it never stopped. But one day she looked at me and she said, would you like a guitar for Christmas? Because I guess she knew my friends had them. And I said, sure. And then, you know, you get the $17.50 plywood screwed on pick guard silver tone. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm at 12, I'm giving a guy a dollar a week to write lyrics and pencil on notebook paper with the chord changes over the words and the Mel Bay book. So, you know, not very formal. Uh, and, and, you know, by the eighth or ninth grade, I, I got a Fender bass at the salvage store and uh, I'm playing in a band. <laughs> and what happened from that point? I mean, what, at what point did you realize I'm going to do this for a living? Well, I think I can probably kind of pinpoint that. Let's see. So so then I go through some high school bands and then I leave Mississippi to come to college for a couple of semesters up here. And I, you know, I got into songwriting and acoustic and tried to play solo a little bit. I went back to Mississippi, uh, started a band and moved to Austin and I switched off on bass and guitar. So that was a little bit of like the door is closing behind you and you're, you know, you're, you're pursuing that path, whether you know it or not. Right. That band broke up. I tried to go sell furniture for my um, uncle, hated it, and went back to Austin, tried to start a band, didn't quite happen, went back to Mississippi, more bands. And then we, we started this band in the summer of 1980 called The Drapes with Casper Rawls, who's the great B-Bender player now in Austin. And that was pretty serious regional kind of band. And uh, I got a lot more serious about guitar playing. For one thing, I didn't have to sing everything. Everybody in the band sang lead. You know, we took turns singing. and. Um, well, I think when it really got serious was uh, about the time, well, it kind of melded from the time of the drapes. That's when the, the Web Wilder film, Web Wilder Private Eye happened. And I uh, started wearing the hat and came to Nashville. And it was hard to start a band here because everybody was scrambling and trying to have paying gigs and stuff. And, uh, you know, the stakes were a lot higher. So really, when we started the Beatnecks, uh, we rehearsed a lot in 84 before we played our first gig in March of 85. I think that you could really say that's sort of, you know, the, the ground zero of there's no turning back. Right. And let me ask you this. How was, you know, and this is a question I like to ask quite a bit because it's, it's different for everybody. I mean, some people always have this really great uh, family support system. And they were, you know, it was no question they were going to be a musician and the family was supportive all the way. And other time, I mean, my parents were supportive, but at the same time, they were horrified. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, from your point of view, how, how was it? Well, my mother indulged me. I was a spoiled child. Uh, she never really encouraged it. I think she was proud of what I did, but um, she was always hoping I would get something more secure, typical parent thing, you know, like uh, be a lawyer or something. And she said, you like to argue, you should be a lawyer. Yes. Or go into the family furniture business with my uncle, who at the time had the biggest furniture store in Mississippi. And it just wasn't me. Uh, my father died when I was in junior high. So if he oh. had lived, if we had lived, I mean, if he had lived, we might have really clashed. He was uh, very kind and supportive of my little junior high band efforts. I think he was pleased his son could play music at all. I got a great story about him though. Before I started playing bass and I had the $17 and 50 cent, uh, silver tone, I was like 12. I spent a lot of time with my dad watching TV at night and stuff. And so I said, you know, I, I really want an electric guitar. And I told you about the guy that taught me how to play with the folk songs and stuff. Right. And, uh, and he said, 
yeah, but you can't even, and bear in mind, my father probably couldn't carry a tune. He goes, uh, you know, uh, you can't even do Tom Dooley yet. And, uh, <laughs> and of course I wasn't having it, you know, and I kept kind of arguing and I said, yeah, but I want an electric guitar. And he goes, you can't even play a manual one yet. <laughs> a manual one. I swear that's a true story. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of ran all over my mother and my father wasn't around. And I'm sure that uh, that played a big part in all of it. So so early, early, mid 80s, you're you're in Nashville to stay. And have you stayed there since? I have. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time, not lately on the road, but a lot of time on the road in the you know years that ensued. But no, I've, I've been in, in Nashville the whole time. And a lot of what's happening to it now, I don't really like. It's getting really crowded and overbuilt and that what I call that damn show, that Nashville TV show seems to have encouraged everyone's son and daughter to move here. And then their parents followed them because, Hey, we're retiring. We'll come too. But, um, hooray. I know that, you know, <laughs> they've wiped out a lot of the authentic stuff. And now the tourists who are more revelers than tourists, Bill Lloyd wrote a song called pedal tavern girl, <laughs> you know, or, but that's annoying me, but I still dig it. And it still really is guitar town. And, uh, I get grumpy about it, but uh, I've always liked it, you know, and uh, it's always changing, but um, I like it. You know, I'm a Southerner. Uh, I was, and to me, this was sort of, I'm from the deep South and this is sort of the top of Dixie or whatever you want to, that's probably not politically correct these days, but the top right. of the South, you know, right. cause you leave here and you start going to Kentucky. Louisville's very interesting. You know, it's sort of like where the Midwest kisses the last of the South, you know? Right. But, um, Anyway, I like it. It, it. it. You go any further north, it seems to be very cold. You go any further south, it's awful muggy. So there's that to consider too. There certainly is. And in terms of um, your perspective, as as far as Nashville being a place where one could stay and make a living, versus being a stationary place where one settles and then works on the road, is it? What, what are your thoughts in that regard? That's changed quite a bit over the years, or are there still certain things that can be done? Uh, locally that are, um, you know, not maybe not primary or maybe primary sources of income or, or ancillary or whatever you want to say? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And of course, see, the landscape is changing, you know, like the ground is moving under our feet. The pandemic, all bets are off with what that has kind of done to things. But what I've noticed is when I first came here, there were people who played on lower broad and they could sort of do okay. And mainly though, um, the, the most good use of it would be for the, the guitar players who just really, you know, the hotshot guitar players and people who wanted to kind of be gunslingers and, and rise up. And a lot of them, you know, did from that, but basically no one I knew was paying much attention to lower broad. And then of course the whole BR549 thing happened but that was more cultural than economic. And they launched a whole career, you know, and then got a deal and had made country music, you know, but, um, and so in the meantime, everyone else, you know, that was a writing center and a recording center and you'd play here once or twice a year, but you really couldn't make a living playing here. You'd go on the road, which is right. what we always did. Then as the Nashville TV show thing happens and the New York times calls Nashville, the it city and all this stuff, bartenders and musicians and all sorts of people were making big coin on lower broad for the tourists and everything, you know? And so 
And then you start to see things like, yes, there are the little bastions of traditional country music and some great players like Roberts. But a lot of the places, they're just playing like bad rock covers and stuff. It starts to lose culture and identity. Right. But but there are people that that's their gig. Now, how that how they've been affected during COVID is relative. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, uh, the situation down there has ignored it. And it's you know, been a super spreader environment, but, but anyway, so I, I was never able to really make a living just playing here alone. And subsequently, you know, um, uh, I've got back issues from, you know, 1 million miles in the van, you know? Yes, indeed. The van of doom and destruction. I tell you. So the live streaming thing has been okay for you in terms of COVID activities or how's that been going? Well, it went great at first, and it continues to be okay. For one thing, you know, it uh, it gets me singing and playing at least once a month. I play guitar every day. I find it hard to just make yourself sing just for the hell of it. I don't know. But, you know, singing, you got to keep it up. So it gives me a show uh, to do. I had to miss one. I had some medical stuff I had to take care of. and uh, But every month since April of 2020, except one, I've done one. So, yeah, it's it's kept me from just rusting solid, I guess is what I'm saying. And and at first, of course, there were a lot of tips, and there still are tips. They're very, lo- very loyal fans. But, you know, people aren't as locked down and right. stuck without other options as they were. I, I, I concur heartily. Our, our experience has been the same when we've been doing the, uh, the band live streams. Um, it's been one of those things where, you know, initially it's like, man, this money's great. Why would you ever leave the house again? Yeah. And then, and then, and then as, as you said, as things open up a little bit, you know, people, they've got other things to do and, and, and the tips, I mean, it's still good, but it's mm-hmm. just not, it's not to the level where you're like scratching your head anymore. Um, but it was, what has been interesting to me just from, you know, the other side of things is just, you know, people have been purchasing guitars and guitar things like it's well like never before which is which is curious because remember a few years back when there were all these various articles in guitar magazines and i think there was something in rolling stone is this the death of guitar you know and obviously that 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 is uh that is uh poppycock as one would say but i know that you have the affliction like i and many others of guitar procurement syndrome now what what things have you been lusting for lately? What have you procured? What have you gotten rid of? What's 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 the latest? Well, I wish I had more to tell you. Um, you know, musicians can't afford instruments. <laughs> but uh, no, I've bought a few things like, you know, I had to buy things to do streaming shows with, you know, like I bought a, a, a ring light and, you know, a, a a tripod for the cell phone. And I bought a Fishman loud box back to your Fishman people. Yes. And, um, uh, and, you know, there's better ways to do it, but that's the way I did it. And I'm glad I have the Fishman Loud Box. It'll be a wonderful thing for house concerts and stuff. Right. Um, I uh, I just get this. I just bought, and I have a real Epiphone 61 three-on-a-side coronet. Right. But Mike Volz is a friend of mine, and he just retired from a long career at Gibson. So oh, he's a good man. He just retired? I didn't know that. Yeah, he had every job under the umbrella of the company at one time or another. But he and I visited the Gibson garage. And, uh, you know, it was a wonderful little outing. And uh, I played the cheap Epiphone Coronet reissue. And I was kind of blown away with it. And I, so I've ordered one. But they told me shipping may not be till after the first of the year. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. It's, it's really crazy. 
And I want a 335. I've had some really nice ones. They're all gone. And uh, they're they're all gone now because if somebody gets one, it sells. Yeah. It, it's wild, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely insane. It's like, you know, they, the guitar, they come in, they, 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 can, they can't keep them in stock. People buy stuff like it's going out of style, which, you know, for you know an aspect of my business, it's magnificent. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and you know, right before everything shut down, I had just put some new tires on the van. Right. <laughs> and I had just bought one of the nice new lacquered tweed pro juniors because I was thinking about this one gig I would play every year where the volume was a big issue. Right. And, and I was going to use two of them. Bob Britt told me he had been using two with Delbert. Right. And uh, I thought that'll be cool, especially for the three piece gigs where I'm not competing with another guitar player. And, um, you know, so so I haven't bought a lot of gear. I've I've, I've kind of tweaked on some parts of casters. I had some old amps fixed. I um I had some guitars refretted. So I don't know that I've really bought. I've got that coronet on order, and that's a low dollar guitar. I I, I really wanted to get a three thirty five, but uh, I just couldn't quite spring for one. You know. I understand. It's funny you should mention the uh, the Pro Juniors. I, I that was my main gigging amp and recording amp for a long time. All uh, right. My uh, Strat's got your tongue record. A lot of that stuff was uh, pro juniors, and I used two of them. And I would I would use two of them live. And then at one point, I started using four of them. Wow! I had, I had two on one side, two on the other, and I would split the signal with a um, some kind of Leslie simulator. And, yeah, man, um, man, it sounded glorious. Well, you know, I noticed the new Tweed one is a good bit brighter than my old black one, and uh, I know you can swap the speaker. Or leave it alone or whatever. But um, I even saw a thing on YouTube where a guy even tried it with a different baffle board. Um, but I'm just wondering if there's some kind of bright cap you can clip in it or something. Oh, that I don't know. That I do not know. I will tell you this, that my new iteration of my caulk amplifier is is kind of based on what I loved about the Pro Junior, but cool. the only thing I didn't like about the Pro Junior is that they sounded great, but when I would record them, they, they have a tendency to sound a little boxy because I do love yeah. to turn them all the way up or, you, yeah. know, turn, you know, and then just use the volume control on your guitar, right? Um, so when I started doing this, I was like, you know, I want it low wattage. I would like a little reverb, you know? Yeah. And, and so we worked out a thing where it's a single 12 combo, uh, but the cabinet's a little bigger than, right. an, uh, so it's not doesn't sound as boxy, and it's got a single EL thirty four. So it's either wow. it's either twelve watts or four watts, and it's got a um, a gain a volume like a gain boost, a single tone control like I always loved about the Pro Junior, but it has reverb as well. Man, and I've been going out doing. I, I just have the prototypes now. They've been, you know, with all this COVID stuff, the supply chain issues is, have been. It was supposed to be out last year at some well, point. Yeah, but, that's going on throughout apparently. Exactly. So, but I, I have been just, you know, and I've been doing lower wattage gigs where I'll just do a, like a throw and go. Uh, a buddy of mine had me come out and do a kind of a spacey jazz jam thing, and I brought that uh, gold top of mine with my new pickups in it with that amp and just plug straight into it and. Good Lord, it sounded good. So well, have, have them send one right on over. I'll, I'll give you my evaluation. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, we can make that happen once they actually have more than one. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's cool. I've been. I've. I haven't seen all your stuff. You know, since pandemic, because there's been so much of it. But every time I see any of it, of course, it just blows me away. And I, I find it interesting that you have found this '74 Strat, right? Yeah, that was a very, uh, a very unusual situation you know it was father's day and and my birthday is a couple days after father's day 
And we had a lot of different stuff going on at the house with this, that, and the next thing. And I said, I need to go out for a little bit. My wife's like, you need a little self-care. And so I went to the music store, as you do when a musician desires uh, self-care. Some people apparently get massages and stuff and, right. and do other kind of self-care things. But I went to the music store. And... I was in there and I was checking out a bunch of different stuff in the good music store right by my house. And, you know, and they had a bunch of custom shop Les Pauls. And for whatever reason, self-care and I are kind of like, you know, messing around with Les Paul. So I'm checking all these different custom shop things. And, and you're like, oh, this one's cool. And you look down at the price. And you're like, you know, even even if I get the super shaggy deal right. on this thing, it's like a kidney, right? I know. So, so then I'm walking around and I see their used wall. And they got some cool different things. And I look way up and I see this big headstock Stratocaster. And I was like, you know, I always had a thing for the big headstock Stratocaster. So yeah. I reached up and I picked it up and I couldn't believe how light it was. I go, what is this? That's appealing. And then they said, uh, oh, it's this this single owner strat. Some guy down in Texas had this thing. It's a 74. I said, it weighs nothing. They're like, yeah, when we got it, we're like, where's the rest of it? <laughs> yeah. And then I plugged it in and it just, it had that, you know, I like a squishy neck pickup. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I know that's probably not a technical term, but. Um, I know what you mean, though. And it just squished, and it had a three-way toggle switch. The middle pickup sounded great, and the and, and it stayed in tune. And, you know, I grew up playing like a 68 Telecaster, so there's certain vibratos and stuff that I do that I find that when I get back to that old-school radius and fret, I it just it comes back. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is that thing. And, and you s- seem to be able to navigate. I mean, your hands are divine, you know, any size neck, but I would imagine that neck's pretty skinny, isn't it? You know, it is relatively, but it's not like the super skinny 70s neck. Yeah. You know, it's just got a little bit of meat and it sounded so good and they made me an offer I couldn't understand. So I self-cared the hell out of myself and bought that damn thing. And Well, that's really fortunate. The other thing is, see, with my few outings to music stores, you know, which were kind of getting more frequent and now I'm getting a little more paranoid again with the COVID, but, um, Everything's picked over. Like you say, you know, you're lucky that wasn't gone when you got there because everybody's buying everything up. Exactly. Exactly correct. Uh, it's. I've been playing a Strat. I have a lot at home, and it's a part. It's a really, it's almost an insult to call it a parts guitar. You'd have to call it a boutique Strat. And um, my friend Gary Bohannon, who is a vintage guitar authority, owned many vintage Strats back in the day. And, uh, it's all I can do to keep his hands off the thing. He he wants it so bad. And uh, he's friends with Dave Cobb, the producer, who also was like, wow, that's a great guitar. It's just one of those things. When they come together, they come together. And, uh, you know, I've been playing it a lot. But I had to get it refretted. It has an all-parts neck. And all-parts puts some kind of tall, skinny frets that are no bueno for me. And Joe Glazer ah. says they're too tall to not be wider. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They don't, but they don't put it on all their necks. So when you when you order one, you never know. You know, it's like a box of chocolates. That that's there's something cool about the, the isn't there? I mean, you, just when the magic happens, it happens. Right. <laughs> well, I always say, you know, there are a lot of guys, and I use the term lovingly, who who build the fake fenders. You know, the parts of casters, and we love Fender, and we hope the necks are licensed, and they've got all that worked out. You know, right? But um, the guy. And some of them have great skill as luthiers and just build beautiful instruments. But some of them are still going to be better than others. And and sometimes the guy with the least skill might just hook the right neck up to the right body and boom, it rings like a bell, you know? Exactly correct. You know, it was interesting about the Strat that um, that a guy still has the three-way toggle switch. And I love that for some reason. 
cool. you know, it just keep you honest. It does, and you know, and what's nice is that the the toggle switch sticks just enough that if I want to get those settings, it'll go there. But I got to work for it, and in yeah. a way, that's almost better because with with Strat, you you almost have too many too many tones at your disposal. I know, I do. Find, I see. I'm, I don't play them live usually, so because I'm always switching. You know, I'm always right. doing that. And what I've really, I feel stupid that I didn't know this earlier. I had a great 69 Strat back in the late seventies, early eighties. And I literally had to sell it to pay the rent when I first moved to Tennessee. And I always regretted that. But, you know, I was like so many people in love with the little, you know, Mark Knopfler, uh, Clapton notch, which just cuts through and works and isn't too trebly and it's great. But what I've learned in my dotage is the neck pickup alone Right. It's incredibly versatile and transparent. You know? Absolutely. You know, it's 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 interesting how you you meet various, uh, you know, strat iconic folk and realize that they'll they'll have like one setting on a strat that they'll use. And that's it. Like, for instance, when I, I got to be uh, pretty friendly with my buddy Paul Barrera from Little Feet and he was literally on the four position all the time. Mm-hmm. And you would listen to all the different tones, either with slide or when he was playing standard. And and it sounded bright. It sounded like it could have been two or even bridge pickup by itself sometimes. Never wandered out of the four position. Always had a compressor on and was always in the four position. So that, and so when you say four, you're talking about the neck in the middle? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the least popular probably of the five right it's it's so so weird and i just couldn't believe that he was always in that position and then i i've been you know i'm a huge Lowell george fan so i I started i started watching a bunch of old videos you know because for whatever reason i didn't really have the first little feet record and lately i've been doing the deep dive and been listening just his tone on there is diabolical and so i've been watching all this old footage and he would mess around a little bit more with going you know a lot of times he was just on the middle pickup um, and I think that's where Bonnie is a lot. Cause I, th- I know she was influenced a lot by what, what yeah. Lowell did. Um, interestingly enough. And so, and then he, but he also had that telly pickup on the bridge position. So times, sometimes he yeah. would be on that, on that back pickup. And then, you know, it was kind of, uh, um, I, when I was younger, I was like, I didn't really like Robin Trower because I thought he was like too much of a Hendrix clone. Although uh-huh. I did like some of the tunes, but you know, uh, later on I started to do some, I did a few shows with him. You know, we never really hung out or anything, but we would open up for him. But he did this one record with, uh, with Jack Bruce, or he did m- multiple records with Jack Bruce, but this particular one that I thought was so cool was this uh, record called Seven Moons. And what I realized about his playing was that he really wasn't doing licks you know, it's it's like bluesy utterances, but it's not really uh-huh. pre- predicated on phrases. You know what I mean? Right, it's just kind of right. like, and I really dug that. I was like, here's a guy who's really improvising within the confines of his of his trick bag. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I don't know if you're talking about the same thing here, but of course, and you can just play with sound. That's a thing too. But um, a Buddy Guy. Yes. You know, uh, uh, people were. Uh, you're talking a lot about Buddy Guy lately in the media, and they should and all. And so I was hearing something from maybe the Sweet Tea album, but yeah, they weren't really phrases; they were intense one-note utterances and things. Right. I thought he played brilliantly when he did the walk-on with Mick and Keith and the Stones, though, in that movie where Keith gives him the rare right Guild yes. Starfire. Exactly. I never could get much sound out of the middle pickup by itself on any guitar that has just a, like some of those 330s and things have the one pickup, but that's where the bass lives. 
Right. You know, you want a middle pickup in your base, but, um, my buddy, who's the strat purist, he's, he, he doesn't like five ways. And, and he, I think he thinks or thought Anson played a lot on that middle position. Of course, Anson is the Anson and Jimmy Vaughn, you know, are purists, you know, cause neither one of them plays rock. They're blues guitarists. Right. Of course. Well, what's interesting about <clears throat> the Robin Trower thing is apparently I started reading up on him. Like, well, here's a guy known for playing strats, always playing strats, always in either the neck pickup or the four position, the neck and middle. Never anything else but those huh. two positions. And, wow. and that, it's just so wild to me. And then in terms of like the middle, what I realized that a lot of my favorite Hendrix things uh, back in the day, I would always think, well, boy, that's got to be one of those quacky two positions or four positions. But he always had three position strats. That's not to say that he wouldn't you right. know, wedge it in there every now and again. I actually saw a picture of him with a white strat. That had three mini toggle switches. So that's like some really yeah. old school, you know, uh, MacGyverin that someone did for him or he did it or whatever. But, you know, allowing him to get those combinations. But a lot of my favorite Hendrix tones was that middle pickup, you know, and he would choke up on the pick to kind of approximate that Albert King thing with that mm -hmm. quackiness of that middle pickup. And, yeah, Strat is uh, it's it's an interesting tone creature, you know, and then I, I get, you know, points where I don't I don't want to play him because they've just been so overdone. And then something will happen like what's happened recently when I get this old, you know, this 74 and it re-inspires re my, yeah. my, my strat lust. I think they're my favorite electric guitars to play at home. And I've shied away from them live. I've shied away from uh, tremolo equipped, you know, or vibrato equipped guitars live too. Yes. So, you know, what I've, what I was, of course, and back to my thing, I haven't played live. Well, I have played live electric guitar on the streaming shows. Anyway, two humbucking pickups on a Telecaster. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it combines a lot of features, and it's still a Telecaster. But um, I don't know, man. I really like that. And, of course, I think you need to get uh, the vintage, I mean, the Fender-spaced humbucker for the bridge on one. I got a Squire thin line a while back that I've modified a lot, and all the Squires seem to have Gibson spacing, which – the good news is you can put a pair of antiquities or whatever on one of those and it lines up perfectly, but you have a little less room between the strings. Yes. I got to get your, uh, get your hands on one of my new gristle nineties with those, right. those quiet P nineties. Oh Lord. And that, now that has a shorter scale though too, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. But that makes the bending divine. I'm sure it does. And it rings in a, in a girthsome way. It's interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wanted the, the Bigsby on it because and I, what inspired me was because I have one of the Reverend um, uh, Reeves Gabrell Spacehawk guitars. Oh, wow. And he does a thing where he's got a certain spring that he actually took off his Schwinn bike and put on this uh, Bigsby that allowed him to do warbles and do all this crazy stuff, all the whammy bar stuff that you'd want to do. And it would be totally intuitive and sound great and also stay in tune. So all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, the way Reverend sets up these Bigsby's, they are, you know, you can actually use the whammy bar. It'll stay in tune. And I like the way they sound. I always like Les Paul's with Bigsby. There's something about that top-loading hmm. Bigsby beast that adds a certain sparkle, whatever you want to say. I never thought about it having, you know, a, a, a sound, but I'm, I'm sure it does because you, yeah. So I, I was intrigued by it. So I wanted that on the guitar, and, and I don't regret it, but it, it's interesting, although I, 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 re, 
restrung my guitar today. I got one of the new gold iterations of the guitar. And I was yeah, saying man. to my wife, I was like, honey, uh, I don't think anyone, any guitar player should, as a rite of passage, needs to have a guitar with a Bigsby on it just so they can learn <laughs> a level of zen restraint of trying to tune or put that thing, restring it without using every profanity that's in their disposal, in their quiver, if you will. Well, now, don't they have, I know, I've, believe me, and I've had some Bigsby guitars, and I've had, I think, three that behaved pretty well, and I'll tell you about them. But now the Bigsby's now, I don't know about the horseshoe-shaped one with the roller bar, but don't they have what they call the pass-through or something where you don't have to use the little pins? It, but mine's got the little pin. So then so you know, put it underneath, and you know you got to bend the string just right and get it in there, and then hold oh, it there and pull it and... But and I, then I'm, you look at the headstock and it comes loose at the butt. Oh, and then and then the profanities fly like. And rain. then the finish gets knocked off of the guitar occasionally too. <laughs> but you know, I had a Guild Starfire that was a really good one, except it had the skinny nut, so I parted with it. But back in that band, I was telling you about the Drapes. Casper played. Uh, he hadn't got into Bender guitars yet at that point, but he played a Tele and a Strat, and I played. Another guitar should never have sold a 64 335 oh, and, and, a, and a 67 Guild Starfire 5, but it had the skinny nut, but it had a Bigsby that worked good. And then I had um, a George Bradfield guitar with a, a, an old Gretsch horseshoe Bigsby. Didn't have a lot of travel, but stayed in tune good. And then I had a Lonnie Mack uh, Custom Shop V. Oh, yeah. And you know what's good about that Bigsby is that to make it work, you know, it sits halfway on the pick guard. So at the factory, they have to put a tiny piece of pick guard under the other side, which raises the Bigsby and softens the brake angle across the tunematic. Ah, interesting. So it worked pretty good too. I had one of those guitars here for a, for a time as well. My buddy had one and he let me use it for, I was a big Lonnie Mac fan. I still am I a big Lonnie fan. Like sure. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, the, the quest for, Guitar activity never ends, but yeah, the, the Bigsby thing is um, is a, is an interesting thing. But I, I like I, the roller bar, so you know, like the Gretches that don't have them. A lot of times, I tune a half step flat because of my low voice. Yes, thing, you know, and uh, boy, all the tension just goes to hell on the ones that don't have on the Bigsbys that don't have the roller bar. It's kind of like the Jazzmaster problem with the down pressure on the bridge and everything. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Guitars, it never ends, my friend. Well, you are such an asset to the guitar community, and I think oh, that, bless uh, you. Oh man, you're a wizard, and you you've got the verbal skills that no other guitar player has. So it's like, wow, <laughs> double barreled. <laughs> I got that from my dad. I reckon my dad, the uh, the lawyer. Ah, he always he always had little phrases that. Uh, well, either it was between my dad and Frank Zappa. I listened to Frank Zappa. My sister had these Frank Zappa records when I was a kid. And my family, my parents had no idea who Frank Zappa was. They had no idea I was listening to things I should not have been listening to as a young man, but uh, mm -hmm. as a young child. But I managed to increase my vocabulary and, <laughs> and, and do different things. But I remember my dad would have little phrases, and what I thought was so funny. If we were in, in, acting inappropriately at the dinner table, and I would say something I thought was funny, he didn't think it was appropriate. He'd look at me and he goes, son, your humor escapes me. Uh -huh. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, there's something about that. <laughs> Son, your humor escapes me. That's a good one. It's good. It for is. The, it's good for the kids. You know, I, I was going to uh, mention. You know, this this past weekend we were talking about what we use in the house versus what we use out and about. 
We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So prior to COVID, you know, one of the reasons why I developed this amp with, you know, those people with my same last name, other than the fact that the amp sounded great, but obviously the fact that we have the same last name is marketing gold, Webb, if we're honest. I know. Uh, But I wanted to have an amp where it's like, I want to be able to go out with a chord, a guitar, and that amp and be done. Yeah. And it, and that's what exactly what I did prior to this. We're touring around with the band, with the trio, and, you know, it's, you know how it is. You're, you're, you're driving the vehicle. You're setting up the merch table. You know, you're, you're doing the gig. You get done. You go back to the merch table. You're pressing the flash. You're doing all this, you know, doing what you need to do. Uh, the other guys are doing their thing, and then you get done with the merch table, like, oh, I got to pack up my shit now. I know, man, and you're the last one because you're the guy at the merch table, so everybody else is packed up. Exactly. So what do I do? I go over, I grab one cord, I wrap that thing up, I take the foot pedal for the amp, I shove it in back, and we're out of there, right? Mm-hmm. So then during the cove here in my room, I was like, well, maybe I'll mess around with them few of the 50 million pedals that are lurking in various states of disrepair in my basement. So I put together a little pedal board and I thought, well, you know what? It would be, <sighs> would be nice to mess around with a little bit of delay, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a little slap back. I like to have that little rockabilly slap back every now and again. Well, I got to put that through the effects loop though. Cause if I use the gain on the amp, I don't want that to get all distorted and shitty sounding. So next thing you know, I got this delay that's going through the effects loop and I got another little pedal board with my, you know, I got I do love my harmonic vibrato on the amp, but it's nice to have that magnetone type of vibrato. So oh, yeah, yeah. And then I got a little phaser going because I like that old phaser sound and a little Octavia. Ooh, good times. What a buffet. Next thing you know, you have an HO train set. Exactly. And then yeah. so we're, this past weekend was our first time we went out and actually did gigs out. So uh, we did a live stream on Friday. We did this lake party on the Saturday. It was a private party. We go out there, and I bring all the shit, right? I got all the stuff set up. We get done playing. I'm selling CDs. I'm pressing the flesh with some folks. And my nephew was there, and he's tearing down all my stuff. Bless his heart. Uh, and as he's doing all this stuff, you know, the only problem with having someone tear down your stuff is you don't, know. You don't know where the hell they're putting any of this stuff. Yep. You know. So he gets done with that. We put it in the car, and then we have to drive six and a half hours to the very north of Wisconsin up in Bayfield. You ever been up in that area by the Apostle Islands up there? I don't think so. There's a gig up there called Big Top Chautauqua. Not that we played it this time, but that would be something maybe you should look into. It's beautiful okay. up there, and it's a cool, cool place to play. Anyways, right by the Apostle Islands, beautiful. Apps, it's, like, it's gorgeous. So we drive all the way up there, and <laughs> for that gig... I went back to one chord, one guitar, one amp, we're done. And I, yeah. I've and, got the smallest pedal board pedal train makes currently, but I'm thinking of going back one more size. So I'm just, just like you, you know, because I want a little delay or whatever. But uh, And amp-wise, you know, I've always used pretty much always – since 85 or whatever used heads and cabinets for right. combos here and there. And, uh, well, yeah, and then see, yeah, here and there, depending on the tininess of the club. But, um, but that's, that's cumbersome too. So back to your point, you know, one combo amp, small pedal board. And then my problem is I can't resist that third guitar. Yes. You know, and I always want to, I should just take two because if you break it, because one is usually an open tuning. 
But hey, guess what? You can retune it. Come on. So you do have a spare. So I need to try to develop that habit and get, you know, and combo amp, small pedal board, two guitars, one gig bag. Away you go. Yeah, lately I've been bringing three guitars because... I like to have a a Gibson type, a Fender type, and an open tuning. Thank you. That's exactly correct. I've got my... uh, my Reverend, that's more like uh, it has my telly set in it. And then I've got my Reverend now with the P90s all set there. And then I'll bring, I'll usually bring like a Les Paul. Yeah. So I've got uh, a gold top with my P90s in it. And that one I'll have to open G or whatever the case may be for Slider Rooney. What open tunings do you like to use when you're in, in doing your thing? I like to fool around with G and E at home, but I've, I've never played G on stage. There are a couple of songs in the canon, so to speak, that are, are in open E that subsequently are open E flat because I tune a half step flat. So it's just open E, really, but it's, it's flat. Open E sounds good. It does, man. And, you know, um, we like to do sometimes for encores Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is originally open E. Keith right. now capos up to be in open G. And doesn't play the intro, and the intro is the cool chong, 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 bong, bong. Right. Know? And then, then the uh, Hitting Where It Hurts is a song uh, that I like to do from the second album. And, um, and there's another one called Every Day I Kick Myself. And um, so all of those are in that tuning, and I just like, I just like having it there and it's ready to go, you know, and you can do those songs. And Unleash the Rock. And tellies love that tuning. And, of course, you know, juniors and coronets and stuff, any, anything really. But, but I've got another parts guitar that defies being good. Um, I met a guy who had a really nice Sur guitar, S-U-H-R. Yeah, telly. they're very, very nice. Yep. Strat contoured, and I thought it was a great guitar. And I had sold the guy an amp, and um, we stayed in touch. And I said, man, I love that guitar. He goes, you know, that thing fell off the stand on an outdoor show and broke. Oh, and I, the body broke just a hunk off of it. And I said, well, you could get it fixed. He goes, oh, no, I'm getting another body from Sir. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you this one if you'll get it fixed. So I got it fixed and I put on an old Saga brand neck from the early 80s. Okay. It had to be shimmed by Jeff Sin to work. And I put a Fralin pickup in the bridge. That thing rings like a golden bell. Yes. And it's light as a feather. And Strat contoured, and uh, that's that's my number one live open tuning guitar. Nice, yeah. It's just a parts junk heap, but it works great. So, how many how many guitars you reckon you're 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 working with these days in terms of what do you have in the arsenal? People are always asking this question. How many guitars do you have? I don't know because I don't I don't dare count. You know, I'd like to think it's about twenty, and this is counting. You know, the Yamaha acoustic and the Mexican baritone, and you know, right. It's not like it's not like you know the Scott Chinnery collection or anything, but um, you know, probably tw- it's probably more like twenty five or six, really. Oh, that's not too bad. Well, I, I had more at one time. I don't yes. know if I ever hit fifty, but I probably had thirty five or forty at one time. I remember back in the day, I had a I, the most I ever had was about fifty, and uh, but th- it's kind of a funny story, you know. That was back in the day where, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff for Fender. Sure. And, um, and, and typically it, it wasn't one of those things where I'd say, well, I would like this, this, and this, and they would send it to me and I wouldn't have to pay for them. It was more like, well, this year, you know, we're coming out with this guitar and this guitar, we're going to send you these. And if you like them, just keep them and use them for all the clinics and gigs and stuff. And I'd be like, great. Well, you know, after 10 years, next thing you know, you've got 
you've got quite a few guitars and amps and so on and so forth. Sure, it's great. Uh, but what was funny about it was is that, you know, I was never, you know, I'm, and I'm not complaining, it was what it was, but um, I was never on, like, retainer mm-hmm. or, or any of that kind of stuff. So it would be one of these things where I had to, you know, make all these different deals with all these different entities all over the the world, really, that were Fender folk. Like, oh, well, you know, in September, you're going to be over in Germany. Well, maybe I'll put a band tour around that. And then as long as I'm there, maybe the Italian guy. So so during the, you know, during the NAM show out in California, I would have, I basically set up my whole year, right? So yeah. I, you know, it was very stressful. You know, it'd be like Friday's like, well, I got to make sure I talk to all these different people so I get an idea of how my year is going to lay out so that, you know, my family can actually do stuff like, you know, eat and things of right, this nature. Right. Uh, but my point being is that once I would I would get this all going, well, sometimes it'd be like, well, we're going to use you for three weeks in, um, or two, we're going to, in July, you're going to be gone for two weeks and we're going to have you here there in the next place. And all of a sudden, the middle of June, they're like, yeah, that got, that got, <laughs> that's now four days instead uh-huh. of the two weeks. So I would, ha- I would sell this, you know, I'd have to sell the stuff. It was like my little um, I- sl- slush fund. Exactly, Sure. And uh, so then things over a period of time, you know, and it's the other thing we talk about as musicians, you know, I talk about this with buddies all the time, and I don't know if you're in, in the same camp, but it's like when you're touring, it's like you're always putting things on the credit card because, you know, your rental car, hotels, yeah. whatever else, and you get reimbursed for that stuff, but oftentimes you don't use that reimbursement money for paying off your credit card. Right. You use it for various other different things. So then all of a sudden, you know, during COVID, all of a sudden you finally get to the point where you're not traveling, you actually pay off your credit card. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> but often back in the days, we'd be like, ah, you should really pay off the credit card. Time for me to get rid of some guitars. So they were always, you know, and there are some things I kind of kick myself. I wish I wouldn't have sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, me but, too, for sure. But, um, you know, when you talked about the the, the sur guitar breaking in half, I was just talking about this the, this past weekend. Uh, we did some gigs with Deke Dickerson up in, up in the great Northwoods. Have you done anything with Deke? I've hung out with him some. I've never played a gig with him or anything, though. What a great dude. We were were shooting the shit, and I was talking about how this buddy of mine from up north, I bought a Strat from him, and it was a 63 Strat. It was the only vintage, well, other than, of course, my sweet 74. But Mm -hmm. prior to that, it was my only uh, old guitar, the 63 Strat. It was a refin. Still. And and, uh, it was a glorious guitar. And at one time, I was doing this photo shoot. It was for a Hal Leonard book I was doing or whatever, and they were doing this photo shoot, and I had the Strat. And they're like, maybe if you could do, because I was kind of like passing the strap from, I was sitting down, passing the strap one hand over to the other, like side to side. Like, man, that would be great if, you know, as you're passing it side to side, I'll take it, I'll take a picture of it right when it's in the middle and you only have your hands out. I'm like, great. So I'm going side to side to side. Hey, we just have the picture. And then it just went face forward. <laughs> it decided not to go side and, side and, the, and the headstock split in half. So oh, I, got, I got it repaired and all that other kind of stuff. But it was just one of those things where, you know, that Strat never quite sounded right to me anyway. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it, it, it had to go. But um, I've had a couple of guitars that were routed kind of swimming pool. One was a, a Dwight coronet and one was a... Um, a 65 fender body I had, and they had been swimming pool routed kind of under and filled. Mm-hmm. And it, it seemed to, and actually there was an SG with a similar thing. They all, it took the tone with it. You know, they, they never had the tone anymore. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how that works, isn't it? It's interesting. You just grab a guitar and you start strumming. And you're like, I, sh- I shouldn't like this guitar, but why do I? <laughs> That's the way I was with that Squire that I 
mod it a lot. And uh, I took the thing to Europe and everything. It's light, you know, it's balanced. And uh, it was really cheap. I mean, they're still cheap, but it was like hanging on the wall at Guitar Center for like $199. Right. I'm new. It was unbelievable, you know. So when you're over in Europe and you're doing your thing, what what do you usually bring over? Do you do you, you rent stuff over there? How do you, how do you like to go about it? Well, I've gone kind of infrequently, but in the uh, in the more uh, recent years, I mean, there was a time years ago where we took amps and everything was really stupid. So we don't I don't take amps. I, uh, what I've done in recent years is the double gig bag carry right. on. Yep. And I've had it to do over. I might just take one. You know, right. And a, and a small pedal board and a canvas thing and uh, two suitcases, one of which has the pedal board and some merchandise and uh, one of which has the clothes. And, it you know, you got a briefcase and a double gig bag and, and you got to keep up with it all yourself. Right. So but the last time I went, I flew, I think it was American. And uh, and it was like literally the day that Tom Petty died. Oh, I had to go to Manchester, England, and uh, through Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When I got off the plane in Philadelphia, my phone was blowing up. So then I go over there, and I'm carrying the guitars online. But when I'm coming back from, like, Sweden via London, via North Carolina, via back to Nashville, the, the carrier was British Airways, and they wouldn't let me take the double gig bag on the plane. So right. that means I... You know, if you're going to check your guitar and baggage, you don't want it to be in a gig bag. But I had no choice. So I, it goes into the Swedish or the actually the Danish meat grinder. Then it goes into the London meat grinder. Then it goes into the North Carolina meat grinder where they give it back to me. And miraculously, two tellies were fine. And I carried it on the plane from wherever it was in North Carolina to Nashville and kind of kissed the ground. You know, it was a long day. <laughs> That, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like when you're when you're traveling overseas, it's it, it's always changing of how you have to figure out. Well, you know, I've done the same thing. Well, let's let's do a double gig bag and carry it on because you know, nine times out of ten, you know, you 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 figure out a way to get on the plane early, and they're going to put it in in uh, you know a luggage closet on the you know whatever. There, there's yeah. there's ways that they usually help you out. So that's like the least stress. I've found in the past, but at the right. same token, every now and again, you'll have that experience you talked about where it'd be like, no, 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 you can't bring that on. Well, what are you talking about? I just, I just did this, you know, a month ago. Nope. Sorry. And there's nothing you can do about it. And, right. uh, or else you'll get into a situation where it's like, and then I have this, this road case where initially I got it years ago. Uh, Fender actually was making them. It was uh, this aircraft aluminum where I can fit three guitars in it uh, and close it up less than 50 pounds. Wow, um, and I, and that's what I'll take more often than not again. But the, again, you're gonna be in a situation if you're traveling within Europe. Like, yeah. okay, well, I'm I'm going from the UK to Sweden, and then from Sweden back to Germany, and then I'm gonna, and all of a sudden on one of those intercontinental flight things, they'll be like, well, no, 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 each piece of luggage is an extra hundred and some odd Whoa. euro. You know what oh, I mean? God, yeah. And so it's just always one of those things, but. It's, you know, it's things people don't think about when they think about the glamorous life of touring Europe. Oh, man. It's and then I've talked to people who have a telly or something. They take it apart and pack it in a suitcase or something, you know. The other thing is if you get a really nice road case and you check it, like a Calton case for an acoustic, then you're stuck lugging that thing around. Exactly. Exactly correct. So, well, the one thing I've done with, with that is I'll take that road case that fits three guitars and I'll bring two. And in the middle, I'll bring a, a gig bag. So, yeah. then, so then I can use that as my main way of getting over. And then if I want to just take a guitar to the room or whatever, I'll use the gig bag to make it. Well nice. played. 
less cumbersome. You know, the things we figure out, Webb, in the great struggle of being a musician on the road ski. Well, you know, life is like a college. You graduate and uh, and your reward is life is over. I mean, I feel like, you know, at my age, I've learned so much. If only I could go back and be a young person and use it. You know. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to ask you about that. So, you know, I've been talking with various musician pals and... Um, and certainly, as we've talked about earlier, we know now that we can make a modicum of currency uh, out of our homes. Um, has that reevaluated your level of wanting to travel? And as we get older, um, is that something that intrigues you to say, yeah, I'm only going to do the stuff I really want to do now? Or, I, or are you one that's like, screw that, get me on the road because that's where I live? No, I, I think, you know, um, I don't want to, I do want to get out and do some live uh, gigs. Uh, but, but, but I, I do kind of have that attitude of like, you know, I'm 67 and I don't want to do stuff I don't want to do. Plus I have this radio gig that's semi demanding. And, um, but I was talking, you know, Prince Charles told me never to drop names, but I was talking to Bill, <laughs> I was talking to Bill Kirchin, who is, you know, uh, who has paid his dues to say the least. Yes, and, we've, uh, had, we've had Bill on this very program. Well, there you go. Well, he told me the very same thing because he's 70 or whatever or older. And he said, you know, I don't want to do anything I don't want to do at right. this point. And uh, he's back to playing some live gigs. I don't know just where because he lives in Austin. Maybe he's done them there. But, yeah, I think there's an element of that. And uh, you look back at some of the stuff that you you sacrificed spine and hearing for. Right. And uh, uh, kind of go, why? You know, and um but, you know, I'd love to just solo gig wise, I'd love to get back to McCabe's in California. But, you know, to go to California, you can't go for one gig. Right. You know? right. And, uh, you know, with the band, we loved playing and hopefully we'll again Fitzgerald's in Chicago. Right. And uh, I loved playing Chicky Wawa in New Orleans solo. And um, Bill and I were talking about that. He was good friends with the guy. He just died. So there's a precious venue in peril. Wow. You know, the Station Inn is the bastion of uh, bluegrass and more here in Nashville, and it's a great-sounding room. Yep. And the guy that owned it just died. Oh. So, and Nashville's, like, surrounding it with skyscrapers and cranes, you know. Right. So, yeah, but I, I want to get out and do some stuff, but I do want to be, uh, you know, selective. And I'm, I'm not in a position, I'm not in as desperate a position as I might have been in the past at times. Well, I, said, I, cer last words. I certainly change. hope you get up here again. That was fun when you came up and we feasted at my one of Fantastic. my fav favorite little morsel establishments. Yeah, we, we, we went there and I promptly ordered just like the most caloric things imaginable. And, and you very sensibly ordered something very healthy. I remember that. <laughs> Which is unusual for me. But it was good food. It was really good. Yes, yeah, the North Avenue Grill. It's a good establishment. One of my favorite jo uh, uh, places to feast when I'm feeling feeling naughty. Which is usual, I, often. I, yeah, I bet. I, I do have some gigs on the books, and I, and I hope we get to do them. We're going to do the trio at uh, the Down Home. Maybe I'll use the two uh, pro juniors in, in October. Uh, we've been playing there since 1986. And probably do the trio at Dale Watson's place, Hernando's Hideaway in Memphis. Oh, nice. In October, yeah. And uh, we're going to play probably the four-piece with the amazing Bob Williams on guitar, with me um, at the Exit Inn, which was in peril for a while here, too, uh, with the White Animals uh, in October. So I think I have a house concert in September, uh, and everything else is in October. And, you know, we're it, 
like I say, the ground seems to be moving under our feet. This whole COVID surge and all right, that, we'll exactly. see. But I can't imagine they're going to cancel another Rolling Stones tour. Right? You, you know? would think that they would. But, you know, yeah, it's it's gotten it's gotten scary again in terms of the, you know, when you when you find out about how it is spiking and, and you know, things get out of control so fast and, who knows? We can remain cautiously optimistic. You know, we foolishly, and even though, you know, my wife and I and the kids have been, I like to use the word inoculated. I don't think that word is used enough. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to say inoculated. I got inoculated back in, I think it was March. Yeah. I had the Johnson & Johnson one and done. And and so when uh, our fabulous Milwaukee Bucks won the uh, world championship here, which was very exciting and a lot of fun. I'm not a huge, I don't want to give the impression that I'm a huge sports fanatic, but uh, got uh, carried away with uh, the whole playoffs and then the finals and so on and so forth. So when they won the um, the world championship, we went down and went to the parade and they had this huge presentation thing. But man, we were in this, uh, a huge, vast quantity of people. And then they're yeah. talking about this surge. And, you know, and yesterday I got back from wherever I was at and I like slept the whole day. And then yeah. you, you wake up and you're like, do I have something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do I need to get checked? Yeah. And, and so it's yeah, it's very, very strange times without without a doubt. And, you know, you book these gigs and you get, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you were in the same position about two, two, three months ago. We we're thinking, well, maybe in the fall we can do gigs again. And then it seemed like literally overnight someone hit a light switch like, no, we're good. It's like everyone's playing again. You know, yeah. you know, boy, am I behind the eight ball because I didn't book gigs this summer? I mean, it's, you know, right. And uh, and now, of course, we're in that same kind of situation again. Well, maybe all these things uh, you know, will not happen. But, you know, again, we can be cautiously optimistic. And fortunately, as you were talking about earlier, that we do have other things we can do from home if that's the eventuality again. And you just kind of, you know, roll with the changes as Ario Speedwagon taught us so many years ago. You got to keep... Cornfield country wisdom. You got to roll with the changes by Jiminy. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and rapping and talking about all things Web Wilder. I appreciate it. Hopefully I can see in person, person one of these days when the pestilence is not raging over the lands. And, I look uh, forward to it. And in the meantime, I will see you online as we engage in convivial quips back and forth on the inner Google. Exactly. And if you come to Music Business City, please let me know. I will definitely do that, my friend. Well, thanks so much again. And uh, we'll get this edited up and on the old Chewing the Gristle podcast. And I'll let you know when it comes out. Please. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Have a good one. You too. It's been a gas. Likewise. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or you'll hear me soon. <laughs>